podcast. My name is Katie Kessner. And I'm Claire Kaplan. Now, we know that the contents of this podcast may be emotionally difficult. We also encourage you to care for your safety and well-being. So please reach out to friends, family, and even a hotline for support. Additional resources can be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. Thanks so much, Claire. And today's podcast, we are so pleased to be joined by Anthony Edwards. And Anthony, I am going to ask you to introduce yourself the way you'd like to be introduced because you've done so much and your life has been such a a joy and a pleasure to so many in so many different ways and capacities. But um, how would you like to share a little bit about your background and and experience? Well, I would just start off by saying I'm a 59-year-old white male who has had the good fortune of working as an actor since I was 16 years old. Uh, something that uh, uh, I, I've even come to realize lately has been of more importance and meaning to me than I even knew at the time. Uh, over those years, people may have seen me in things like Revenge of the Nerds, uh, uh, Top Gun. Um, uh, I was on the series ER for eight years playing a well-intentioned but very uh, tragic doctor, uh, uh, Dr. Green, that people, so those are kind of the worlds I've been in. Um, And most importantly, for the last six years, five years, I've been working with an organization called oneinsix.org, which is what we're here today to talk about a bit, which is my experience uh, in relation to being a male survivor of childhood sexual abuse, which is another part of who I am. I appreciate very much that you gave us that perspective. So if we could, you know, so many of all of our interviewees have shared a little bit, whatever they're comfortable sharing about what brings them to this microphone, this particular microphone, um, and whatever part of that experience you would like to share, I'm sure is going to help so many. So can you take us back to age 12? If you're, you know, not going to be too overwhelmed. (laughs) No, not not at all. There's, you know, one of the joys of recovery that I've had is the ability to watch shame shrink. And as shame shrinks, um, uh, there is no shame for me now in relation to what happened because it was something that was done to me. It wasn't something that was I asked for, wanted, or uh, was responsible for in any way. I was abused, assaulted by an adult man who betrayed the trust of what a young person's job is to do, which is, as my friend Marty Moran, who's a wonderful survivor and and, uh, writer, poet, author, says, the child's job is to fall in love and the adult's job is to set the limits, set the boundaries. And that's what happens. So for me, I was a young man who had a not a great relationship with my father. I'm the youngest of five. My father was checked out for a lot of different reasons, which happens with a lot of families. But you naturally look for that. You look for father figures. You look for, for adult uh, uh, people to help you. And uh, mine turned out to be someone who was in the world that I'd fallen in love with, which was the world of theater and acting and pretending and drama. And I was really fortunate to be in a small town Santa Barbara that had a ton of theater going on for and kids. And you knew that so even like going, at age 12? I just, I think that's, yeah, like, I, your passion yeah, was just, already formed. <laughs> yeah, I think, and maybe that's from being the youngest of five that, you know, 
performing at a dinner table or being liked or trying to find connections. And, and I was also really small. I was 12, but I, 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 like when I was 16, I got to, I drove to the, uh, to the DMV and got my license. Uh, but, and then afterwards I, I drove to the movies and got in for 12 and under. So I was one of those <laughs> little like the bloom kids. Uh, and that combined with a real desire and need to connect, um, is kind of the wonderful, ironically said, st uh, stopping ground for um, for a pedophile. Pedophiles love to find vulnerable children who are in need of love and companionship. And, yes, they do. And want to belong to a group. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it happened to me. What happened was is something that I didn't understand until later is that what that experience was of having the betrayal bond be cemented at such an early age. And I was had a bond through the betrayal of someone who had taken love and turned that definition upside down. And it's the, actually the opposite, but used all the words. It was all about love. It was all about caring. It was all about, we'll be there for you. You know, you're the only one you can trust, creating that thing you think it is. But what in fact you're learning is the horrors of pure conditional love and everything being a condition, which is if you don't play this game this way, you're out. You're no longer part of the group. You're not part of the gang. You can't be part of it. And that survival becomes a foundation for a life in which fear is what is the foundation. And, and you know, that doesn't kind of classically in the male experience is what I'm finding can often take 20, 30, 40 years before a man will actually start looking at that because there's so much shame involved. And there's also other people in my case that were, quote, in my mind, hurt worse, you know, had more of a, a physical, more of a physical, um, um, well, I mean, more rape than I had. So I got off easy. I wasn't, you know, I should, and you combine that with just, the traditions of, of the way we deal with things in society of men, don't cry, don't show your feelings, be strong, suck it up. Um, and just kind of basic, you know, homophobic slurs in this, in our world in which, you know, here I was a straight, straight man, um, having been abused by another man. Does that mean that I'm gay? Is gay being bad? Is that what, I mean, there's just so much in the mire of, of why men stay silent. And I did that. And it wasn't until I was 52 years old and I had actually, um, the, my abuser showed up on the news because there he was in a lawsuit with Brian Singer and all these men who had been accused and Gary Goddard was there in the news being, uh, um, investigated and sued by victims he had abused. And it just hit me in a way that a rage and an anger came up like I'd never felt before because there I was at 52 years old. And I so clearly remember being 31 years old when right after my first child was born and I was on an airplane and I was full of new young father pride and, and, an understanding of what unconditional love and probably for the first time in my life experiencing what unconditional love was. And there was this man who had hurt me and hurt my friends on this plane. And I confronted him and I said, what you did was wrong. And, uh, and you hurt a lot of people. And, you know, and at that point, um, 
my one of my best friends who actually died two two years later uh, from AIDS was one of the one of the young one of the sufferers who was in 1997 didn't you know right before the retrovirals came out didn't make it and um, I uh, I confronted this person Gary on this and the whole way from that getting off the plane to walking to baggage claim he went through a a long list of he was sorry he'd gotten help it was a dark part of his life it didn't happen again it only happened at that period that was years ago this was you know 20 years before he'd gotten some he since has had a child he's just you know all this remorse and that he was you know fine and taken care of and you know, the once again, the betrayal happened. You know, there he was having lied again. And when that hit me again, I, at that point, wanted to, like, take out an ad in Variety. And I wanted to say, you know, Dr. Green and Goose was abused by this man. And, I mean, I was so full of rage. And I had the good fortune of having the, a friendship with Mariska Hargitay, who you know and know yes. her work at the Heart Foundation and what great work she's done with domestic abuse survivors and continues to. And I called up Mariska and I said, I got to talk to someone. And she said, come over. And I, she sat with me as I told her story. And she said, well, why don't you just take a minute and let me help you find somebody who can help you. And she got me in contact with Dr. Richard Gardner, who was one of the first men to explore and um, write about and work with uh, abuse survivors, particularly male sexual abuse survivors from childhood trauma. And it saved my life because I started a, a road to recovery there. So that's kind of, I don't know, that's, that's a bit of an abbreviation of my journey. If I'm two things, 12 years old and experiencing, as you said, this manipulation and violation and betrayal as a male where we, as you said, are have these macho expectations about being powerful, being in control. And how did, or how would you, you can answer personally or for men in your thoughts about it, because the control issue to me, when you're a male survivor, is really important about being willing to open up to others going forward. And, you know, one, maybe one way, I don't know if I'm putting ideas in, but I'm just listening and learning about you. Um, one way you establish a really clear sense of being able to be vulnerable, but you did it on a stage, which I think is really interesting. And maybe I'm just jumping, but you were, you wanted to express vulnerability and accessibility and emotion as a male. You found the stage as a safe place maybe to do that. Well, and, and, no, and Katie, that's, that's where, that's why we call them survive, call people survivors, mm -hmm. right? Because you develop skills to survive. Mm -hmm. And I actually had that seed had been planted before I'd been abused by Gary mm -hmm. of a love for the theater. It was just a right. place that I just, it was a safe, wonderful place. And so it was always what I went back mm -hmm. to. And acting is what I always went back to because for me, that time between action and cut is complete trust, complete openness, complete communication back and forth, which was all we're ever looking for. I was not only getting paid to do it, I, I you know, I, I got to do it 
all the time, but like, I didn't realize how much I needed it. Like, right. it was like, no wonder I was really good on ER. Like, I really, right. <laughs> I really That's what I up. kind of am thinking, Anthony, is like, you may have excelled even more than you ever imagined because this was your safe, comfortable place where you could put everything on the table. And you did, yeah. maybe, I, I don't know. Because I have a question about that, because it was in through your involvement in theater that this violence happened, this violation happened. And I'm wondering, um, I mean, it makes me think of, for example, kids who are athletes who are abused by coaches or whatever, this, the sort of parallels here. And for some, it makes them determined to continue. And for others, they say, oh, I'm not doing it anymore. And it's totally crushed my dream. And it's crushed my idea of this place that I loved and that um, was the one thing I had and he took it away from me, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you, you know, did that ever occur to you or do you, it, it, was it just your love for theater was just so deep that it didn't yeah. matter? It's funny because actually in, in starting the recovery project, part of the hesitancy of wanting to look at this was thinking, if I go into this place and look at this stuff, I'm going to lose all that. I'm going to lose talent. I'm, what You know, I, cause I was being accused of, having to be liked. I need to be liked. You have to be, you know, and I was, my love for that was weaponized against me in another world, in another relationship. And so I had real doubt about looking at that. And so I, that was part of the fear was that I am that whole thing as opposed to that was a part of me that can be looked at and separate and dealt with and I can continue. And I, I think that's a really that's where I, I this it's been such a joy these last six years because you learn like what does recovery mean recovery means recovering good things it's i keep i get to recover that child you know i was talking to a, a dear friend a survivor today who we were talking about that it's like that caring for that little boy inside us that little person that little girl whoever it was who was abused when they were a child and when that break happens that caring for and bringing that child recovering that child and bringing that child to integrate into your life again is really wonderful and it's a real relief because you thought oh no if i look at this before the fear was if you looked at it or told the truth because if you told the truth that child would die mm -hmm. that's the fear that's the right. child has that's right. Absolutely. if i tell the truth about Gary or tell this when my mom said to me, we hear Gary's a pedophile, you know, is it true? I said, absolutely not. You know, 13, 14, I was like, no way. He loves us. He's our mentor. He's our leader. He's, you know, I had, you drink the Kool-Aid big because if I was to go against that at that age, the vulnerability of that child would, it would feel like a death. Well, and you would have lost would your theater world right then. You would have lost that. Everything. Yeah. Friendships, yeah. everything. And when you're a kid, you're completely focused on yourself yeah. as you should yeah. be. You know. So wow. your mother, so your mother yeah. actually so there were rumors already. And your mother asked yeah. you. Wow. Well, we were in the theater, you know, and this yeah. is the theater in the seventies yeah, yeah. and you know, yeah. the seventies. And you know, there's a lots of as I said, there was homophobia around, there was this stuff, you know, and gay people were drawn to the theater, all of this stuff. So, you know, we weren't in the dark ages, but we were also in, um, it's a funny, I just want to say one thing that like reminds me of, of makes what I think about often in relation to men. And you brought up earlier in talking about uh, 
the Me Too movement and the experience of that. That the reason why I'm really dedicated in working within the world to open up the conversation with men and male survivors is because the Me Too movement is fantastic and paving the way of women getting out and speaking and getting angry and screaming and, and saying, this has happened. And there's a lot of anger that needs to be articulated. And the, the fact is, my experience is in the male world, the anger has been there all along. And the rage has been acting out in a lot of ways. There's a lot of men I meet who've been acting out through alcohol, drugs, sex, control, power, money, all kinds of different symptoms. Um, and what they really need to do, or a lot of men need to do, is to get quiet <laughs> and to get, get, get quiet and to just be able to articulate what happened and to start the conversation. Because the rage and everything's at such a high level. I think we should think about keeping the rage there, but not, not in the same way. Right. The rage isn't going to go away. I just mean in the way to recovery. Yeah, yeah. For many things ways into how they're going to start the healing, The from my experience, a lot of time, men have had lots of places to articulate rage, and they have in a lot of bad ways. In, in ways that are acceptable in our culture. Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, acceptable. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know. No, here's a different question I, I was thinking, Anthony, is... In 12 to 14, as a male, I assume you're also starting to scope out and think about you as a sexual entity, right? I, you know, my twins are 14, so I I sit with you when I, as a parent, was reliving all the things through their eyes, as you must have done for your own children. There's all kinds of things that you all of a sudden think differently about your own past, and you probably went through that. But what I wanted to think about is, for men who are abused during that coming of age or understanding power control and sex, you were treated like an object by your predator, your pedophile. Women, stereotypically, have been treated as objects, sexual mm -hmm. objects for all time, right? But how did you then think about that being turned into an object and integrating that being into back a sexual subject and I first understanding of my own sexuality and ownership thereof? Yeah. You know, for me, I know from my, my friends who, um, my, uh, my gay brothers in this world, it gets, it can be a mired, more difficult situation because of their own natural desires that are evolving in 12, 13. At, at, for me, 12, 13, I, I was, you know, very clear to me that I was attracted to women and girls. And I, that was everything. I mean, I was a serial monogamous dater. That's what mm -hmm. I did. And, you know, and I That's put a tremendous... you, I'm glad you didn't double up sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think uh, sex, it, you know, I put up incredibly overly high mark as to the what sex was and that that was the end result of love. And that was love was everything there. The problem is the differentiation between what love is. That's where it's horrific, the physical things that can happen. But the the lasting, scarring, lifetime effects 
are all, in my experience, emotional uh, self-worth, um, the, 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 the scars of the damage of, of low self-esteem, of, of value, of thinking that you aren't a value, that you only are a commodity. Right. And not sexually, but a commodity in the power structure of survival in the necessity of love. We all need to connect. We have to connect as human beings to other human beings. If we don't, we die, right? And, you know, I, it's this so resonates for me because I'm thinking about how um, when a young person grows up thinking or believing because of this kind of influence that uh, love means is, is um, what's the word I'm thinking of? It's something to barter. It, it's almost as if you get that love in exchange for something. It's, it's something you have to negotiate over and it's something you have to, you're paying a price for it. And that people who say they love you are wanting something from you. Yeah. And, and, and for you to get what you want, you have to barter. Yes. You know, you're in negotiation all the time yeah. to get love. And so the, you, you seek out relationships in which you know the role to play. So, okay, I can get this and this, as opposed to these wonderful friendships or love that we experience where we have these people in our lives where it doesn't matter if we called them or we didn't call them or we gave them something or didn't give them something. The love is there. The mutual, the respect, the connection is there. And they, they aren't, uh, we, we, sometimes we have to relearn how to discover those because we're so ingrained into, I only know that I'm alive when my fear is activated. I only know I'm alive in a relationship because it might be over tomorrow, you know? <laughs> and, and that is its own self-perpetuating drug. And that kind of cynicism in a way, <clears throat> this sort of cynicism about love um, <clears throat> is a consequence of knowing mm. that you are, um, you have to pay for getting that love that there's always a price for it and that people who say they right. love you want something from you right right um anthony i i was thinking also you know you you talked about you know six years ago i believe you said was when kind of you started to delve into this space uh, more fully how is your six last six years different from your relationships and trust before this willingness to open up does it feel completely different to you? Are you um, like did you jump from Saturn to Jupiter? Like I always think <laughs> you had a planetary shift in your in your world, but I don't, I don't want to put words there. I guess it's you know rather than thinking of it as a whole different world, mm -hmm. it feels like an ease into the into a deeper part of this world. So I, I'm not having an out-of-body experience except for things like realizing, oh, I haven't been terrified for a while. <laughs> I haven't been worried about this thing or the other. And you, I'm a parent. I have four children. You know, We can take all of our fears and put them all onto our kids and be like, okay, so if love is about control and, and that thing, even though I'm not aware of it, I'm going to then spend my life trying to figure out how to live, you know, through my kids. And, and if they are not happy, then that means I've done something wrong. All of that stuff, which is counterintuitive to parenting, because parenting is about building something up and letting it free and, and, and be its own thing. Um, and that's our role. Um, 
life has felt very different there in in a in a really in a much deeper way. This simplicity of 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 not it's that thing. I guess I keep going back to recovery, where when you talk to people who are in rooms, twelve steppy rooms, or wherever they are in recovery with other people, and they're building relationships based on a new way of perceiving themselves and others. They always say that thing of like, I wish you, you know, a slow recovery because there's something about taking the time and taking the steps slowly that then all of a sudden you go, Oh, I'm not having a radical difference. I'm having a subtle, deep, deep difference that is consistently changing. So I didn't have to get on a spaceship and go to another planet. I actually got to change this planet that I'm on and how I, how I walk on it and how I look at myself in the mirror. But did the people you love and care about go on that journey with you then? Yes, and the ones who do love and care about you go on any journey with you because they love you. And the other thing that I just have to say too is what I've really learned in my experience the last six years is no one does this alone. And you cannot do this alone. You can't figure this out in your own brain and you're not going to recover alone. We only recover through the connection with other people. And that's why in our on our website on oneinsix.org and everywhere, what we try and help support is just to start the conversation and let people know, family members, wives, sisters, aunts, uncles, of people around survivors. You don't have to have any answers. All you have to do is listen. And listening is 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 all any survivor needs. Uh, you know, we talk about like women can be very chatty. And I would beg to argue that when you get five male survivors together, like you better like block out the weekend because <laughs> they're not gonna stop talking. So- because once this talking starts happening, boy, it's like a bad cocaine party. Does um, <laughs> Anthony want to? It's a relief to be able to say something. <laughs> Can I people see that? Hear you? Is it? I was going to say, does one in six have an operate, you know, an operating chat room where male survivors can go, or how does it work? We do. We we have we have five uh, online support groups uh, going every week. It's expanding to twenty now. Fantastic! Uh, Fantastic. We go online, and we yeah, we just got a big grant. Uh, we're very proud of to uh, make that happen. The five hundred thousand dollars is going to help expand Great. our chat. Great. Um, and um, yeah, I mean that that's that's what we do. And we also really establish just in the basic thing. We put up there's an incredible thing on there called the Bristlecone Project, which Dr. David Lissack has done. And just for men to look at 150 different pictures and pick one, and then hear a bit of the story and everything. That's the beginning. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful project. Of isolation. Mm-hmm. Feel like you're not alone, which I'm sure, which is your experience, Katie. Every time you speak, ten people come up out of your audience. I'm sure minimum to yeah, say minimum. this happened to me, or I know someone happened to, or I'm worried about my. You know, it's just you know, and and by getting people talking, the most important thing is, is we're breaking the stigma, and that's what you've done so well. Is you're helping break the stigma, because that's what made the difference in. You know, women's rights, it's what made the difference in, you know, the breast cancer movement, like, take the negative away from it, take the shame out. So let me, let me ask, um, I'm curious to know um, how this experience you've had getting, being involved in one in six and being now such an advocate, um, outspokenly so, how that influences your work? 
you know, as an actor, everything influences your work. If you can keep thinking and feeling and, and being honest and being truthful. I mean, the, I guess it helps in reaffirming that idea that truth is always welcome. And that's all we're supposed to be doing as actors is, is keep kind of recreating truths that we feel. So uh, it just kind of, it keeps it keeps it connected. Anthony, um, what about this idea? I could you play a pedophile? Yeah, I'm sure I could. You could. I that's bold. You no, know, because what you learn is that these are these are like and especially you know I had a therapist that was really helpful who helped me on this one bit, and it was Dr. Gardner it was another one who talked about the fact that she was a very liberal person, but the fact that she, you know. For every one pedophile, there's two to 300 victims on average. Of course. I mean, two to 300. And so once again, that's about, first of all, let's break the mythology that if you're abused, you go on to abuse. That's not true. It, there's nothing right. true. There's nothing factual to say that people who are abused go to abuse. They're sick. There's, there's such a sickness there. There is not a, there's not a, you know, they have to be separated from children. Right, 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 right. And um, I'm so glad you have water because you're being so incredibly helpful, Anthony. And I, you know, where I see this huge need to keep the conversation going is I keep going back in my head. I, I land on one in six again and again and again, because every time, every time I'm in front of, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, if it's Dalton, if it's Harvard, Westlake, I think they don't believe it because unfortunately I'm standing there as a female. But I say that number, Anthony, and, you know, 30 years ago when I started at 18, I read a number said one in four women. And I was like, really? I don't know anyone, right? right. And back then, historically, if we go back a little bit in time, it took a while before we gave faces and cases to a stick. Mm-hmm. But I feel the stereotype is still there and maybe we've wrapped our heads a little bit around one in four for women but we're not even close to one in six for men no and the, and the numbers yeah the numbers probably less than that it probably is more like one in five or closer to the one right. in four women because and the fact is if you just think of numbers right now Matt, that's 27 million american men right now right are walking around like this yes so Anthony, what, like, that's where I, I really think the solution to a lot of this problem is the equalization around gender to speak and feel supported and get met when men who are survivors start saying me too mm-hmm. in their own way, that's going to blow everything up. Yeah, well... You know, but it's it, it it happens with leadership and women within the Me Too movement and women women in general have led the way in this in 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 a, in a big way. So, it is on the example and what work is going on that we at One in Six are really committed to. And we it's not in any way to eliminate anybody in relation to male recovery is different than female recovery. The recovery is all the same. Recovery for men and women is the same. It's individual. Everybody has different things. It's not based on sex or sexuality or gender or anything in relation to recovery. It's the getting to the recovery right. that's different. And that's the part that, that, that we're working on at one in six, which is 
All we're trying to do is get men to that first conversation by saying, it's okay, there's no shame in it. And there, you know, there's an example right now of what kind of shame there is that is being actually in that the, you know, the Michael Jackson musical is opening up on Broadway. And here we are, we've had two incredibly heroic men, Wade and James, and the filmmaker, Dan, tell a story so incredibly, beautifully and thoroughly, and let the story be told in that four hours on HBO, that to me, it's very black and white. Look, I get it. If you think they're lying, <laughs> if you think that wasn't a truthful story that you heard, great. You can do and make your musical and do your thing and keep exploiting Michael Jackson. But if you for one second believe what happened to those young men, as opposed, and also the other people who don't have a voice in there, but who were part of that world, then what are you doing exploiting and making money off of Michael Jackson. What you're doing is silencing survivors. And you're saying, you know what? If you're rich, it's the same thing Dave Chappelle did. And we came out at one in six and wrote an op-ed and wrote a thing because Dave Chappelle, you know, horrifically said, oh, they're lucky to have gotten that from Michael Jackson. He was Michael Jackson. I mean, that kind of joke, that kind of crassness of money and greed just takes why as a survivor would you say anything? I mean, it wouldn't matter what your sex or gender was. If it's not yeah. wanted, it's an assault. And because it has and the other thing that's really important, Claire, is it has nothing to do with sex. That's right. This is not sex. It's this not. is about rape. This is about this is violence, manipulation, control, coercion. rape, manipulation, and violence mm -hmm. is what yes. it is. Yes. And and, you know, when I, I did an incredible experience of being with 40 men in a weekend of re recovery with 40 survivors, and we spent three days together and did all kinds of workshop stuff. And I'm not betraying any anonymity to say that the, the, the perpetrators I heard in there were aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, mothers, <laughs> clergymen, the theater teachers, sports teachers, everybody who hurts children. There's no sexuality to it. It comes from, they come from all different worlds. And that's why the way to change is really just to help people who've been hurt be able to speak sooner. Because that's our goal is we just, we don't want it to be an average of 30, 40 years for men to speak. We want that age to come down and down and down and down because, you know, Matthew Ennis, who's a wonderful, our CEO on One in Six, had an opportunity to start his healing two or three years after. And as a result, he's been an incredible leader in all the charitable and the, the work that he's done over the years because he didn't lose 30 years of his life out of fear. He was actively out there making a difference in recovery. So. I think that because you're a hero and a role model um, to so many and so much of your own personal story is gonna help, especially men, you hear this podcast think about what's in it for me to go the same path you did and the only if you're comfortable again i i think you know men their partners and their kids and you have both yeah what wisdom can you share that might be useful for well i guess i guess to say that when this all changed for me, it was coinciding with an incredibly huge life-changing moment in relation to a marriage and family and all that. It, it happened all at the same time in a way that, you know, uh, I, 
I don't know if that's what it was meant to be. I don't know if that was, but it was so big and such a huge explosion of a change in life that I guess the wisdom would be to say that even at what I thought was the absolute darkest moment of my life, that the ability to start again is not really starting again. It's like I said, it's recovering. You already have a foundation of a lot of good things that have gone well, even though at that point in your life, everything is ruined, it seems. <laughs> that taking that step, those steps into recovery, into communication, and finding and reestablishing loving partnerships. And I was incredibly fortunate um, to reconnect with an old uh, dear, dear friend and has been an incredible partner to me these last six, seven years of going through this experience because, um, like I said, we don't do this alone. So I guess the wisdom would be <laughs> like you would with any anybody, and especially as a parent to a child, is it will feel as if it's the darkest time you could ever face because what you're asking yourself to do is to change. You're going to change the way you perceive yourself. You're going to change the way you perceive life, the way you change the way you perceive love. And those are things that in the history of abuse or trauma feel like if any of those things change, the whole house will crumble and fall. And the fact is my experience and what I hear from so many survivors is house did not crumble. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your um, insight and experiences. It'll be so important to folks who will hear this. Um, so thank you so much, Anthony, for joining our podcast, um, joining um, all of our listeners, our subscribers, your voice, your journey, your honesty, your openness has helped so many, um, especially for all of our male survivors, I, I hope and, and very much look forward to you all going to one in six and finding the resources that Anthony discussed. And um, they seem to be adding all the time. So it's it's really, truly a, a gift to have the one in six dot org um, partnership and your leadership there and informing that organization, Anthony. So thank you so much. Thank you. And we also we're so grateful to all of you who have joined us to listen and learn, no matter your reason for being here. This podcast is for everyone from all walks of life. For support, please visit our resources listed on TakeBackTheNight.org website, where you can tune into our upcoming events and gain access to our free legal hotline. Self-care is self-love. Thanks so much, Claire. Again, this has been the Dear Katie podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, please tune in again next week when we have another episode. Um, together, we shatter the silence and, and the violence. So long, everyone.